0: The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to History with Jackson. On today's episode, I speak to Jamie Graham, or as some of you know him, Jamie History, all about aliens and the history of how they've been represented in literature and in 17th century Europe. This was a fantastic episode. I really enjoy talking to Jamie about this and I've wanted to talk to him about this on the podcast for so, so long. So, without risk of sounding like the History Channel's Aliens man, I will leave you with Jamie as he talks to us about his work of Mice and Moon, the representation of imagined extraterrestrial life in 17th century Europe. Enjoy. Enjoy. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. So today we have a podcast that I think has been a long time in the making. Uh, I've been really, really excited and I've, I've tracked the progress of this work ever since he announced that he was going to write on this. So today we are welcoming historian Jamie Graham to the podcast, known to some of you as Jamie History. And we're going to talk to Jamie all about his work of Mice and Moon the representation of imagined extraterrestrial life in seventeenth century Europe, Europe, not Europe. How are you doing,
1: <laughs> I'm doing great, thank you. Um, it's great to be here uh, on on the show, and I'm glad to hear that you were keenly watching and waiting for this thing to be ready, so that you could pounce on it. Um, but yeah, no, it's just good to be here and to talk about the the you know the beliefs in seventeenth uh, century Europe.
0: I've, I've honestly the second you said it I was so so excited and you were posting those history history channel memes I was like I've, I've got to talk to Jamie about this so I'm I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you about it but first thing I want to I want to ask you and I've asked everyone this and we have so such amazing answers to it what was the inspiration for you in in writing coming up for this work?
1: So the idea, the inspiration for why I wanted to go down this sort of road, it started during when I was writing my undergraduate dissertation. I wrote about the, like, betrayal of death in ballads in the 17th century, um, which obviously is a very heavy topic. You're writing it during a pandemic. It's an even worse thing to write about uh, because everywhere you look now, it's death, death, death. And it just got a very heavy topic. So when I started my master's, and I was looking at dissertation ideas I very much like vowed that whatever I was going to do it was going go to go the opposite end of the spectrum to pick something as quirky and as fun as I could uh, just to sort of bring some sort of joy into what I'm writing and I'd stumbled into this topic after a frantic night of googling um I stumbled into the works of John Wilkins um, who was very much my inspiration for this. He was the Bishop of Chester in the 17th century. He's the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell, which is a, a family portrait I can never quite picture. Them both stood next to each other. Um, and I'm half convinced that the only reason that, yeah, I've always joked that uh, Cromwell banned Christmas so he didn't have to put up with him. Uh, and it's a wacky idea on aliens. Um, but yeah, it was Wilkins's work um, that was very much, it made me laugh. And at the beginning of my dissertation, I thought I'd do something fun. I wonder if other people did what he did, um, which obviously we're going to talk about on this. Um, and that's that's how the crazy project was born.
0: It's it's quite funny that juxtaposition between your undergrad dissertation and this master's thesis is probably the same between Wilkin and Cromwell as well. So
1: <laughs> it's my two personalities coming out.
0: So This period, the 17th century, is dominated by religion. There's a lot of religious conflict, politically and and, and sometimes physically. So how were people wanting to explore this topic of extraterrestrials able to do so without inciting the fury of the church?
1: Um, yeah, it's a good question, because uh, obviously the Catholic Church in particular, but the Protestant one, too, was not very keen at this time in ideas about, uh, you know, science, changing attitudes towards like the structures of the universe, uh, of changing understandings of the solar system and planets. It was all a very contentious issue. Like you have just have to look at like, Galileo and like Bruno and what happened to them, um, sort of evidence for it. But then to go a step further and go, oh, but there's life on those planets too. It opens like a theological can of worms that sends like the Catholic church screaming every time anyone brought it up. Um, And as a result, these sort of like wacky ideas often got included or like used against the authors. Uh, A good example of it is Johannes Kepler. Um, He was a big German scientist at the time. His mother gets tried on witchcraft charges. And his work that references extraterrestrial life gets brought up as evidence um, against his mother because they argue that it's like a demonic work and that she is clearly the inspiration for the work. Which, in fairness, like Johannes Kepler didn't help in that regard, but uh, there was so much that like, because there was that risk, people had to try other ways to sort of protect themselves so one of the main ways they did it was to basically make it all comical, um, to make it all seem like it was a joke. You know, it's, it's sometimes you do this today when you say something and you just go, it was a joke, guys. I didn't actually mean it. All these writers sort of did it in advance. So John Wilkins, in his scientific study, uh, where he explores uh, the idea of extraterrestrials. He refers to it as a light study that he did whilst he was a student at Oxford Uni. So he always goes, I never took it seriously. It's a light study. I just did it in my spare time. You know, it a fun little hobby. Um, and then other people would put on things like it's a comical, comical story, a comical tale, um, or to very much imply that it's all fictional. You shouldn't take it seriously. Johannes Kepler took his very seriously after his mother's uh, witchcraft trial, after he got his mum off the witchcraft charges, he annotated the entire book um, and he went through it. So if you look, if you ever read it now, it's like tiny bits of text and massive annotations underneath in the footnotes. And it's Johannes Kepler basically explaining line by line everything that he meant in it, because he basically just went this should never be taken out of context again and he even puts into it don't take this out of context i'm writing down what it means so that there's no chance of this getting uh, mistaken so it's things like that ways of just like protecting yourself is just to make it a joke or to explain it and to basically insist that what you're saying isn't heretical um because obviously, if people think it is, there is a very big uh, repercussions uh, for the authors.
0: I find I find it quite funny how those those kind of footnotes still carry on today, where you get some academics going like, "No, no, I genuinely mean this, not what you might think I mean." So I think I think it's quite funny how those similar kind of studies uh, and ways of talking about your studies have continued on to today, and to try and get his mum or to get his mum off those witch trial. Trials is absolutely brilliant, and to and then be vengeful with it is, I think, a brilliant a brilliant way of being an academic in that perspective.
1: It's academic pettiness at its finest, I think.
0: And I don't think we've escaped that really. But I want to. So these guys have managed to to save themselves and their families from the fury of the Protestant and the Catholic Church. Were some of these people able to use their ideas of aliens or extraterrestrials to criticize the church because I'm very I'm fairly certain that you know that you're hiding things comically you're able to also hide some kind of criticism within there
1: uh yeah there's a whole uh, a lot of the works are like fictional stories uh like their stories their plays uh they're all meant to be like fictional tales And, you know, obviously the great benefit of when you talk about an extraterrestrial is that no one knows what they look like or, you know, what societies they live in or the things that they believe in. So you can just make it up and, you know, say that, oh, they believe this. They do. They think things like this. It's like in a modern sci-fi when you have aliens and other, you know, like, you know, otherworldly civilizations. And a lot of them are based on like certain parts of humanity, like certain, you know, tropes or certain ideas and they sort of embody them and the idea is that by looking at it like another planet doing it by looking at like another race of aliens doing it you can almost go that actually seems really weird and then you sort of think on a mo- mo- you think on it for a bit and then just go we do it as well <laughs> hang on why <laughs> um, and that's a big part about it um there's one author like french author called Cyrano de Bergerac and he puts he wrote a whole comical history Um, Of the empires of the moon, he called it. And in that he goes up, his protagonist goes up and he's exploring this beautiful utopian world. And the idea is, is that as he's going around, all the aliens kind of look at him and go, yeah, but like, God's not a thing really in this context. Because he's go. go they go, well, he's not, we're not referenced in your book. And we've not heard of you before. um, So how can this be? And then they go. Do you really think he could actually make everything one planet's enough? Do you think he'd make everything? And so they kind of like instill these almost like anti-religious ideas or criticisms of the church within, like, and have it as the extraterrestrial saying it um, or embodying those ideas, so that they either seem ridiculous or they raise like a good point, um, and you can only agree with them uh, as a result of it.
0: I think. I think it's. You know, as you put, just pointed out, it's astounding the similarities between how they're able to convey uh, their characters as their, their enemy, in a sense, in the same way that we do today in film and television, where, you know, in Top Gun, there's no, there's no insignia on the, on the planes, but you know they're criticizing the Russians and the Chinese. Hmm. Uh, I think, you know, those similarities are really interesting. It allows you to kind of explore those dynamics a little bit better without getting in trouble obviously.
1: Yeah. They also do this whole uh, utopian genre. Most of these works imply that extra, like, these extraterrestrial worlds are utopias, but they're like the best places to be. And so as a result, um, they often will instill religious ideas into them as a way of like, what's like the perfect idea of the church? What's the perfect image of Christianity? Um, and Francis Godwin's a good example of this. In his book, the man, The Man in the Moon, uh, the Adventures of Domingo Gonzalez, which is the best title I've ever heard. Um, the protagonist goes up, and he finds that there are moon, there are people living on the moon, and all of them are Christian, um, and specifically they're all Protestants. Although they have a Pope, which he, he, they never explain how that's meant to work, but they're Protestants with a Pope, and. He goes around and like explores this world, this brilliant world, and he, he begins to learn about what they actually believe. So it's things like they all know Jesus. They all know the name Jesus off the bat, but they've never heard of Mary. They've never heard of any of the saints. Um, and so he goes, so Jesus is the big thing. None of the others matter. And that's there. That Francis Godwin, like almost like projecting his vision of what is important in faith
0: it's It's really quite interesting how he's able to give that thinly veiled criticism of the church uh, and and people be able to read that and go, "Oh yeah." and I, I, I want to touch on Godwin uh, a little bit more because he sounds like a really fascinating character, and, and in his book, you've mentioned that he he links China to to extraterrestrials. What, why is that?:
1: So during the seventeenth century, uh interaction between Europe and China is still a relatively new thing um you're only at this point really starting to get missionaries and traders going over to china and they're learning about like their culture their political systems their like religious systems their beliefs uh, how like just china operates as a whole and so there was a big sort of almost agreement amongst like academics or well, academics and theologians they had this big respect towards china almost like you know they praised it almost like it was a utopian place because they look and go, everything's like nicely organized, you know, they've got this great system, they've got these good beliefs that are they're sort of grounded in sort of realism. Like ancestor worship, a lot of them didn't particularly mind it. Um, they said that uh, it makes sense to honor your ancestors. Um, and so as a result, there's a the- there was a theological idea at the time that China, Chinese society was the utopian society. But in order for it to be better, it just had to be Christianized and have that injection of Christianity into that system. And Francis Godwin basically emulates this in his book. So his Society of the movement is very structured; it's ordered. It has like a emperor that's divinely uh, appointed. He's got the divine right to rule, just like the uh, the Chinese emperors had. Um, he rules with like absolute authority. And then at the end of the book, Domingo Gonzalez returns to Earth. And he crash lands in China, and uh, he's taking my like, prisoner uh, for crashing into like someone's house um and like wrecking it uh, with his space vehicle. And he spends some time in China until some missionaries come and collect him and they bring him back to Europe. But Domingo Gonzalez like sort of remarks in the in that chapter, in that closing chapter that China's really good. He really likes it. He just has like good respect for like its society, its authority, how things have been set up. And so Francis Goldwyn basically presents that sort of attitude to his readers, that the Chinese society is one to look up to. And it's one that we should take inspiration from, but it just needs a bit of Christianity in the mix. And then it would be absolute heaven on earth uh, was sort of his main idea.
0: It's, it's It's really interesting to hear those imperialist views come in as well you know talking about exporting christianity to to kind of help this place which they thought was a utopia it's a it's quite a strange concept but it's it's very interesting to hear how they they thought about china and and you know a lot of my research in china so it's very interesting to hear that that perspective now did the idea of there being other planets and other life on these planets and, and, and these people writing about this did it change people's view on humanity's role in christianity
1: there's a big sense that people were trying to almost like def- like create a new meaning for humanity um, at this point as a result of it because now that the universe is like infinitely big sort of the idea now that uh, earth is no longer the center of the universe uh, earth's importance uh, sort of had gradually de. Uh, decreased whereas before it used to be the center of the universe so at least you could always go well we're, we're the center of the universe we are important but if now we've just become like another planet it does sort of raise up some questions and different authors take this in different meanings so some just sort of say we're one of many planets francis godwin took the line of we're one of many christian planets every planet must have some indicator of who jesus is um, and it would be like our mission to go and make contact with these other Christian worlds to share our knowledge with them, to trade with them, to sort of all improve ourselves spiritually uh, as a, almost a universal collective. Um, but other writers sort of went the opposite way. And in their presentations of it, they go, they don't know God, they don't know Christianity. They try and sort of present it as almost like a pagan, like pagan universe with the Christian core, and that it's hum- like humanity's destiny to be the missionaries to go out and to convert these other worlds, so in both both sort of outlooks, they both agree that they need to go out and visit these other planets. It's just for other purposes, whether that's to make contact with christian with other Christians or to convert other people and make the universe Christian as a result
0: it It, it sounds like the kind of continuation of how Christians have thought about Christianity's role on Earth. You know, we, we should go out and go and interact with these other Christians out, uh, out further east, or we should go out further east and, and convert these people to Christianity. I think it's a very, very interesting uh, perspective of be, being able to see that they want to continue those views. Now, outside of viewing these other planets as either Christian or Christian with the differences you spoke about, Protestants with popes, uh, or you know, pagan uh, societies. How did authors, and, and we've touched on this already, and I kind of want to just explore and unpack it a little bit more. How did authors and thinkers imagine the wider society and politics of these planets? Uh, you know, we're talking about them, a lot of them being almost utopias. Uh, so were these, these, these views that they had indicative of a wider political landscape of the period?
1: Uh, the main sort of political um, sort of structure that basically every uh, extraterrestrial society that they imagined during the 17th century is an absolute monarchy. They're basically all absolute monarchies. They have a strong figurehead. It's like Godwin's has a strong king that rules over the world. He rules over a collection of princes that have like local territories. Each prince then has other princes that serve under them. A very like hierarchical, almost feudal-like structure um, where you just have the one emperor at the top and then layers and layers of uh, princes down below where none of them can stand up to the uh, the king's might alone. Um, but this is also seen in other works as well um, because it's all meant to link to the ideas of promoting uh, absolute monarchies across uh, Europe. So obviously we have King James VI or James I uh, in Scotland and in England, And he was very much pushing the idea of the divine right of kings, um, that he had the right, he he had been given the right by God himself to rule over the kingdom as he sees fit. And a lot of these works sort of agree with him. And they kind of suggest that, yes, this is the way things should be done. So there's one uh, play that was done by a guy called Ben Johnson, and he calls it News from the New World. And they don't mean it as like News from America. He means the new world up in space. Um, and it's two heralds discussing, like, this this extra uh, terrestrial society that they have encountered. And at the end of it, a group of extraterrestrials come onto the stage and they do a series of songs and dances. And the first one of these that they do is all about how amazing King James I is. <laughs> They're all sat there going, he's great. We love him so much. We've heard about him up, or, like, up in our society on the moon. He's great. We love him. Um, you should all like him too. And then they all run off stage um, to do their next song. Um, so it was very much uh, seen as a way of like popularizing them in almost like a very strange way of doing it. Because it's like, if you aren't going to take my word for it, take this extraterrestrial being's word for it. Um, because his greatness has extended beyond the uh, boundaries of Earth itself. Um, it's a good it's a good prestige win that. But you had other... Authors that also try to reinforce the ideas like the power of absolute monarchies. So Siren of the does this in his work on you know the comical history of the states and empires of the Moon. Because um, during the book, uh, there's a civil war that breaks out where a bunch of the nobles rise up against the emperor because they don't agree with some of his decisions, and the emperor just absolutely annihilates them all <laughs> in a war, and the. The mention of the war is so short, it's literally like a paragraph. They just go, they rose up and then they got defeated uh, by the emperor and the emperor just restored order greatly. So there is a great sense where they're trying to create this idea that absolute monarchies create that sense of order, that sense of stability, and they very much promote it. They I've never seen a work where they promote other government types. The closest you get are when you have the nobles kicking around, almost like like parliament would but they never have the power that like Parliament did when they challenged King Charles I uh, in the British Civil Wars. Um, it never, they never have that kind of power. It's always still, nope, the king has the power, the emperor has the power, he is great, all hail him.
0: It's, it's really interesting to see that, it's, it, it's, uh, this work is operating as a, a form of propaganda that reflects what those monarchies want people to say. Uh, in essence and i find that really interesting how they're promoting absolute monarchy uh particularly for for a monarch who needed to promote that as well uh due to their recent succession to the throne i th- i find that quite quite interesting really now this period importantly uh is the beginning of the colonial era for european powers and they're starting to establish these vast empires with the original new world as you mentioned in with the the americas so we've we've touched on imperialism a little bit already, but I would just want to, to look at it a little bit more. is how did the ideas of colonialism link to these imagined or the imagined lunar society
1: um so there's you yeah, know once again, there's sort of two ways that they take this: um, some people use extraterrestrial worlds as a mean to almost subtly criticize colonialism and to suggest that maybe it's not the right way to go around things. And then other writers are all up for it and they go, yes, this is great. Um, this is exactly what we should uh, be um, you know, aspiring to co- continue doing. Um, and the best example of this can be seen within Johannes Kepler's work uh, in his book, Somnium. The world is divided into basically two big continents, um, which he calls Prevolver and Subvolver. And the inhabitants of these, the Prevolvins and the Subvolvins, are culturally very different. So in Kepler's work, the Prevolvins are a race of giants that live in nomadic, in nomadic society. They travel around their great plains, uh, following the water sources wherever they go, um, so that they can stay hydrated, so that they can cool themselves down from the blazing sun. And they live in these very tribal communities. It seem, It has a very positive impression of them. The Way he describes them, it does just sound quite nice that it's all these giants walking around the countryside together, um, going wherever the water takes them. Um, and this is very much like a comparison to like the Native American groups you see on like the Great Plains, um, and sort of those tribal communities that uh European powers were making contact with as they travel, well, as they began clo- well, colonizing in uh, the Americas. Um, but You have the subvolvans, who are described by Kepler as a race of snake people, um, who all live in underground cities on their side of the moon, and they live in their cities, and they have uh, to set up like a series of pumps to pump the water from prevolva into subvolva so that they can stay hydrated, so that they can stay cool, uh, so that they can keep their industries going, basically. And the idea of it is, is it's almost like a representation of the differences between the uh, sort of like, you know, the Native Americans and the Europeans, where the Europeans are extracting the resources from the Native American side and bringing it back over to Europe um, just because they, they can, because they want the resources. And it's much like how the subvolvans are extracting the water and bringing it over to their side and taking it away from the prevolvans. So it's almost like a criticism of it uh, in a sort of very subtle way, because it very much is acknowledging that they are just taking resources from that side of the world and that they are exploiting the people that live there and that they're taking the things that they need away from them. So that's sort of how Kepler subtly criticizes colonialism. And then you have Samuel Butler, who takes Kepler's, he's always the good example in my book. Because for a lot of these, these works, they invent their own ideas of extraterrestrials. But for Samuel Butler, he takes Johannes Kepler's vision of it and he brings it into his work. So he has the pre and the sub right off the bat. Um, he has them both, you know, living on the moon together. The scenario is very much the same. However... He adds in this whole big ritualistic war that they have every year. They just have this big war every year, fight it all out in a big pitched battle. And Samuel Butler in his poem is really in favour of the subvolvents to win to the point where he's not even hiding it. He's going on about like how the subvolvents are the civilised people that they are fighting for civilization, all that's good in the world. And he even says that they fight against like the rude, like, peasants of the pre-volvans uh and it's very much you know kepler was subtle butler was not uh in his portrayal of it and the ideas that he was embedding into those works and so when the subvolvans win the war because of course they had to um butler's going like it's a great day this is like a joyous occasion civilization has prevailed and the idea is that if you're reading it, you would go like, "Yes, civilization should prevail," and so you just start agreeing with the like that colonial narrative that's justifying why the European powers have to expand across the Americas, why they have to extract the resources from them, because they can just go look at the rude peasants in the Americas. We have we're the civilized ones. Um, it very much just reinforces that attitude.
0: It's it's really. It's quite, quite interesting to see those splits in in opinion towards, you know, religion and Protestantism, imperialism or colonialism, and how those, those splits play out in their work, but also how those splits have still continued today. And I, I know there's some people who might even consider Kaplan's uh, perspective on colonialism as progressive today. Um, and I find that very, very interesting how they felt that they were able to criticise it, but also give an opinion which is fairly modern um, by today's standards. So I think that's, that's really fascinating to see how they were able to bring and criticise colonialism as well. Did, so we're talking about the moon and we're talking about colonialism. Did anyone harbour any kind of aspirations regarding the moon? Uh, because obviously we, we're in this massive period of expansion from European powers. Some of them must have looked up.
1: Uh, and they did, and it was my boy John Wilkins, uh, the the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell himself. Um, He is famous for the last chapter that he writes in the book, um, where he basically writes out a moon mission. (laughs) Um, He plans out a moon mission. It's wild. It's the funniest thing that you ever read, really. Um, And he sort of explains how you can get to the moon. Um, His plan is kind of kind of on the he's sort of right in uh, how he wants to approach it his idea was to get someone put them in a wooden chariot as he describes it and just launch them up um sling them up uh, to the point where he says like to the point where the gravitational field would lose its uh, grip uh, on the actual chariot and from that point on they have to float for about 180 days to get to the moon in what he describes as like an ethereal soup because the idea that there's that space was a void um, was just not something that people could fathom at this point. So they believed there had to be something in between Earth and the moon. So Wilkins sort of adopts that common idea that it was like a big soup <laughs> that you sort of floated through. Um, and the idea was that the chariot would drift its way slowly towards the moon and then it would land on the moon. And then you could get off and just experience life. You could meet the moon people who we called the Selenites. Um, you know, you could experience all the, the joys that they had. Um, you, the fun things about his travel include that you weren't allowed to bring food on the on the voyage. <laughs> um, he says that you have to hibernate like a hedgehog. Um, you just have to sort of sit there and hibernate until the whole thing is over. Because if you bring food with you, it throws off the calculations and the journey is impossible. Um, and then he says he sort of concludes in the book why it's even worth trying to make the journey to the moon. And he's going, look, it's great. Right. We get to the moon. We'll get to meet like the moon people, the Selenites. We'll get to converse with them. We'll get to trade with them. We'll build treaty ports. You know, we're going to be rich as a result of it. The end of his book sounds more like a business proposal than like an actual scientific work. And so a lot of people think he kind of did see this more as a business proposal. Um, because sadly, I don't know if he attempted it, but he rewrote the end of the, well, he republishes the book a couple of times to update the science of the journey. As he's getting like new information, new things change, he republishes the book to change that information and goes, right, the moon mission has had an update. You now have to do this if you want to get to the moon. Um, And it's great. It's why I think a lot of people sometimes question whether he ever truly meant it. But I think if you're going through all the effort to republish a book that you did as a joke, apparently, um, whilst you were in uni, and you have to do it to constantly update the science of it to make sure it's perfectly scientifically correct, at least as far as they were concerned, can't have been a joke. And he really did just want to go to the moon and set up these trading centres and become rich (laughs) by trading with the Selenites.
0: I think off the back of that, I can kind of understand why Cromwell might have banned Christmas. Uh, <laughs> I think it, I think he's got some very interesting ideas there, and, and there's certainly some some billionaires today that it, if they'd had that uh, that business plan, that book come through on their doorstep on X or something like that, they would have they would have perhaps their ears might have pricked up a little bit.
1: Yeah, they might have been a little interested with it. And Wilkins really, <laughs> I think he really did try to like sell this pitch to people. Um, he invents a new language, um, which is one of like the odd detours in his career. Um, he invents a language that he called Real Character. And when people asked him why, to do it, why he was doing it, he, said, he explains in his work that he wanted to create a language that could be used across the earth. Um, by anyone wanting to exchange in like commerce in like merchants uh, and trade and religion, because he said Latin's a bit too complicated of a universal language. So I'm going to make a simpler version of one. And people sort of looked at it and went, oh, cool. You know, it's a weird random side project, um, you know, for him to make. Unless, unless you were trying to create a new language, so that when you went up to the moon, you would have an easier way of communicating with people by teaching them how to use the la- this simplified language, um, so that you could exchange, well, you could you know learn how to communicate much more effectively, and you could set up those trading centers a lot more quickly.
0: I think I think he sounds like an incredibly intelligent but bizarre individual. <laughs> Uh he def I think he would have definitely wanted himself slung in that wooden chariot up to the moon to fly through that ethereal soup. Uh I definitely think he's an interesting character. Now he we've is. we've looked we've looked at politics, religion, extra extraterrestrial societies, we've we've touched on the business aspect of, of space and the moon. I, I now want to readjust to look at to look at science. Yeah, you know, this was the age of discovery. So how did science play a role in bringing these ideas to the fray?
1: Science is very much like at the core of it, uh, for why this even becomes a thing. Um, and it's to do with uh, Copernicus and his, uh, solar si- his model for the solar system, um, which very much represents like the changing outlook on how people viewed the solar system and the universe as a whole. Prior to Copernicus, the idea of uh, well, the idea of the universe was based on like, the Aristonian, uh sort of like image of it, where you have Earth in the center of the universe and then everything revolves around it. Um, and so we're the center of the universe. Things all revolve around it. Um, and things also get like better the further out you go. It was a really weird note for him to put in. He's like, we're the worst part of the universe, but we are the middle, middle of it. And then when Copernicus studies like the solar system and he goes, no, maybe it's a different method. And he suggests that instead the planets revolve around the sun. Earth basically gets a massive demotion in its importance. We go from being the center of the universe to being just another planet, uh, just another you know rock uh, floating around in space orbiting the sun. And when he comes out with this model, people started to go, but if we're on this planet and this planet's now nothing special really, we just orbit the sun. Does that mean that every other planet that's orbiting the sun is like us? And this is how the idea of extraterrestrials becomes born because people look now to like the moon and to other planets and goes, well if they're just like us, they must also have like their own ecosystems, they must have life, they must have you know other like human-like people. Um, and that's where these ideas sort of become you know they get birth from people add in like their religious attitudes their political ideas uh you know once these ideas become a thing um and they add their own like satirical touch on top of it but at its core this was an idea that was birthed out of uh evolving scientific ideas
0: it's it's definitely a logical step to go and make you know knowing very little about space and different planets and so on that if earth is no longer the center and there's several other planets that are doing the same thing as earth i think it's a logical step then to go well if we have this here there must be something else very similar out there and i think that was very it was a very logical step for them to make but did did any of these theories about extraterrestrials and life on other planets bring or promote more study into science and space and and did anything come out of this further study
1: um, I think for some people, uh, for some like scientists and academics, this definitely did encourage them to look like to the stars, to look to the other planets and to study them. So like John Wilkins's book is a his book where he's trying to prove that the moon is its own planet. And he's looking at it um, through the map and he's mapping out where the seas have to be, where the lands have to be. And he's establishing like how it would be able to have an ecosystem, how light is able to work with it. And they're looking at planets in like a different perspective at that point where they're starting to look at each one in turn and going, but how could that one sustain life? Or what would this one be like if we went to it? Of course, they have no way of proving it, but, you know, and if they went there, they'd all be thoroughly disappointed um, by what they'd find when they land. But the idea was it was just to promote the sort of like thinking about it and to promote looking at things um, across uh, across the galaxies. Um, but it also did the opposite, because for people who disagree with Copernicus, there's no better way to take down like a credible scientific idea than to have a go and to sort of ridiculize the lunatic aspects um, of some of the people who sort of follow that belief. And people who obviously were against Copernicus were also naturally against the idea of extraterrestrials. And rather than argue that Copernicus is wrong, they just go, they go, look at these people believing in extraterrestrials. This is why you can't believe this. Um, There's a lot of works that are critical to the scientific community during this time. So Samuel Butler, Samuel Butler comes back at this one in his poem after he's done his massive, you know, Epic war poetry bashing uh, the idea of Native Americans and promoting colonialism. In the same poem, in the second half of it, it's all about um, the Royal Society uh, looking through a telescope at the moon because they want to see if they can find an elephant that they believe lives on the moon. Um, And also for the Royal Society in particular was chosen because John Wilkins was a founding member of it. Um, so they've, they've already got like the wacky alien guy within the group. Um, so it's an easy group to sort of criticize if you're against that theory. And so in the poem, they look through the telescope and as they look up to the, the moon, they can see something. They think it's an elephant. They all get very excited about it. They're all talking about this elephant that they can see running across the moon really quickly. It's sprinting across like uh, to speed that they didn't think was possible. They're all discussing it. And then at the end of the poem one of the guys looks in the telescope and realises that a mouse has crawled inside it, and that's been running around the inside of the telescope, which has then just been, like, incre- like inflated to look like an elephant. And so Butler's poem was meant to be that scientists and, like, you know, these leading academics are just jumping to conclusions, and they're not, like, re evidence. They only see the first thing that they want to see and then they go that's it that's it that's our theory and butler goes but you know that's not correct that's not what you should be doing so you shouldn't believe what these academics are telling you um and it's an idea that's seen in other works as well so um afra ben um you know the well renowned playwright afra ben it, she writes a play called the emperor of the moon and in this uh play it's all it mainly revolves around uh, this father in the family And he neglects his family because all he does every day or every night is he goes and he looks through his telescope at the moon because he's trying to see the emperor of the moon and he neglects his family. You know, he's not paying any attention to what his daughter's up to anymore. And they all see it as a very bad thing. And so they decide that they're going to break the spell. They're going to break him out of his madness, his lunar madness, um, and so they all dress up like the Emperor of the Moon and like inhabitants of the moon, and they all show up to him one day and they're like look we're we're real, we're definitely real, and they all chat with him, and they make up this whole ridiculous story, and they're all explaining these different parts of the lunar society that they've just completely made up, and the guy's like lapping it up, he's like, Yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And then at the end, his family have to like take off all the robes and they go. It's us. How did you not know it was us? And so the father goes like, "Oh my God, I got duped so easily." You know, I, you know, yeah. You know, how could I fall for it? And so he goes and he burns down his library. <laughs> um, it's a rather like, you know, a rather drastic rejection for the scientific uh, works that had led him to this point. And so Afra Ben was also basically criticizing uh, intellectualism and you know academics and how and some of these ideas that they're believing in so it did help some people uh in their pursuit to study the universe it gave them like encouragement to keep looking um but for other people uh or at least on the wider i guess like as a whole it was sort of seen as like a negative thing because it was just embarrassing to be associated with it
0: it's quite funny to hear how you know, people aren't just people are again criticizing academics and specialists who are who are researching this thing due to the ridicule that is, or, or maddening theories that are coming out of what these academics and these specialists are saying. I think it's quite it's quite interesting. It has a lot of parallels with with today. And speaking of today, I, I do kind of want to move into our you know one of our last questions: What can these theories and stories tell us about today? Then.
1: So what I sort of think is the main sort of thing to take away from studying uh, 17th century attitudes in uh, extraterrestrials is it's how people both were able to use extraterrestrials to reflect on humanity itself by embedding the ideas within extraterrestrials. um, They could better understand like the worlds that they live in, the ideas that they have, the things that they do, the systems that they, uh, they live in. Um, And we do that ourselves in modern sci-fi. We attribute to all our uh, extraterrestrial societies ideas and reflections of humanity. We've not changed on that department. Um, It's just that some of our ideas are just different and some of the things we focus on are different. But at the end of the day, it's just about reflecting society itself and putting it into a different perspective Because when you look at it in a different, almost otherworldly perspective, you can almost go, is this right? Is this how we should do things? Why do we do this? Um, And I think that is one of the interesting things to take away from it. But I also think it's interesting in comparing it to the modern world, because a big part of it is it's people trying to understand their place in the universe. Uh, Obviously, you have like the colonial ideas um, where people were wondering, oh, like if there are is life on other planets, what should we do with them? Like, do we interact with them? Do we go to like convert them? Do we conquer them? Will they conquer us? There's loads of like different ideas of what humanity should do now that they're in a different environment, and the environment is uh, the entire universe. You know, its role has changed. What should they do? Um, and what is humanity's purpose in it? Because the idea has always been what why were we created? uh you know, under that Christian idea, they go, with well, God created us, we still have to have a purpose. So they use extraterrestrials to go, Well mate, what is our purpose? It's thinking about it. And in the modern uh in like modern you know scientific uh, explorations in modern uh you know astrology, it's all about uh you know locating other life. You know, some people really go down that road of we need to find other planets where there's life on them to see if there are other civilizations because we almost don't want to be the only one in the in the universe. We want other uh, societies to exist, and so that fuels our uh, exploration of space. And if sort of, and we've sort of built our uh, our narrative in space as being explorers. Um, to explore the space well to explore these planets to understand them better and to see what else is out there because maybe by exploring the universe better we will then establish what is our next sort of role within the universe what is the new what is the future for humanity on a universal level rather than it just being on an earthly level
0: i think that's a really nice reflection to take away from this this work and 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 the other people's work on extraterrestrial life uh, and how they viewed themselves as well I think it's I think it's, it ties together quite nicely uh, and it, it, it gives a lot of food for thought for people now Jamie I want to ask you one final fun question as we do for all our guests here on the History of Jackson podcast uh, and this is re- related to your your role and and your hobby is a, a reenactor. So, what is your favorite era to do reenactment for?
1: Oh, well that's a good one. So, my main—I mean, it's not going to come as a surprise, is it? It's seventeenth century. Um, it's the English Civil Wars or the British Civil Wars. I have—it was the first reenactment uh, period that I started in uh, six years ago. At the at this point. Um so 17-year-old Jamie running around in like 17th century clothing was never something I imagined would happen. But now that I do it, it's great. Um and I love it. I love like the time period, uh, I love the clothing. The clothing is so comfy. Um, really nice woolens, um, just like all good to like run around in like a jacket. Um I love like the history of the British Civil Wars, um like the political aspects of it, the very like the focus on civilian life and everyday people and how they lived during a civil war, and a very destructive civil war. And it's very much that sort of love for the 17th century and that reenactment that sort of led me to, to this dissertation topic, to the, stumble into the idea of you know, extraterrestrial life during this period, because I loved the period and I wanted to know more about it, and even like the quirky sides of that period. So it's just been great to do and i'm like you know i'm in a great uh, reenactment group with it am i allowed to shout them out
0: uh, of course of yeah, course
1: yeah okay good. um so i'm with like the of manchester's regiment of foot um it's a wonderful uh, reenactment group as part of the sea or not uh, a lovely group of people there's a great camaraderie amongst them all and we all just look good in red coats um <laughs> it's our main it's our main merit <laughs> on the battlefield it's a different question but at least we look good at first
0: I, I think that's a great answer, you know you know it's 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 built up not only you know you've been able to build friendships and build a connection with people, but the, you've developed your historical specialism around that, which I think is really interesting and really really great. and I think I do agree with you there. you know the the British Civil War period is an incredibly interesting period militarily and politically, and it, i I definitely think it's something that's undervalued historically and there perhaps should be, and and you're doing it yourself, but there should perhaps be more study into it.
1: Absolutely. I will, I will lead the charge on the British Civil Wars if I have to. And John Wilkins will be at my side the whole way.
0: <laughs> Rambling about sending you up to the moon on a slingshot. So, so Jamie, obviously people have enjoyed listening to you talk about Uh, extraterrestrials and your work of mice and mood the representation of imagined extraterrestrial life in 17th century Europe. So how can they find you, your work and your podcast online?
1: Um, Well, if you want to hear more of my ramblings um, and see the other like random historical rabbit holes I go down, um, it is the I have an Instagram account, uh I have a Facebook page. Uh both of them are Jammy History. Um I update those quite regularly with little historical pieces of trivia and random things that I have encountered and I make everyone else uh experience them as a result. Uh but I also have the Jammy History podcast um which uh sort of goes well aims to cover the things that I want to talk about, but they're a bit too long for Instagram and Facebook. So I have to record longer episodes where I talk about them. And it's where I, I very much see it as like my hub for the quirky. So John Wilkins got an episode on it because of course he did. Um, you know, he had to. But I also talk about other things like the court dwarf of King Charles the I, um, the battle between ocean liners during the First World War. At the moment, at the time that we're recording this, Um, I'm working on an episode about uh, the Chinese man that claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus Christ um, in the 19th century, um, which was one hell of a can of worms to go through. Um, But it's very much seen as like, you know, that place for novelty. So Jammy History, you know, check out the Instagram, check out the Facebook, check out the podcast. Uh, We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any podcast site you can think of, we're probably on it. Um, It's on YouTube as well so just wherever you look you'll find me
0: (laughs) i I will thoroughly recommend jamie's jamie's content he's been he's been incredibly prolific prolific recently and i've loved the content so keep it up and i definitely recommend people going away and listening to it and watching it as well so thank you very much for listening to the history jackson podcast thank you very much for coming on jamie i really appreciate it
1: thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to be here and to ramble uh, (laughs) like this (laughs)
0: I think it's been a great episode. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you very much for listening to this amazing episode with Jamie. I really, really enjoyed doing this with him. It was really informative, and it was great to talk about aliens, which is a topic that I don't think a lot of us in the history community and uh, profession talk about very often at all. Without you know trying to sound like a meme, but if you enjoyed this episode and you've enjoyed any of the other episodes that I have created, please consider subscribing. To history of jackson plus on apple podcasts or head to my buy me a coffee profile where you can make a one-off donation to help support history of jackson or you can become a monthly supporter so thank you very much for listening and i hope to see you all next episode